I'd like to direct your attention once again to the book of Numbers. We'll be looking at Numbers 23 and 24. We'll actually read both chapters. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Yahweh put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? From, for from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your bird offering, while I meet Yahweh over there. And Yahweh met Balaam, and put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What what has Yahweh spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh, their God, is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now shall be said of Jacob and Israel what God has wrought. Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey. And drunk the blood of the slain. 
And Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that Yahweh says that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion, up like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you've blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but Yahweh has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I'm going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you captive. 
And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber. And he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place. And Balak also went his way. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me one more time. Lord, as we, as we examine this text, I, just, I pray again for special grace that you would give us insight and understanding and help us to see how this word to ancient Israel has implications even for us today. Guide us individually and as a body through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think the most comforting doctrine in all the Bible is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And there are, there are so many texts that speak to the sovereignty of God that we look to for comfort when things seem out of control and when our lives seem to be upended. Consider the comfort provided in the story of Joseph, especially Genesis fifty twenty. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Or the story of Job, the man who lost everything. And yet through it all, God works things in such a way that not only does he give double to Job what, what, of what, everything he had lost. He also draws Job even closer to himself and, and sanctifies Job through that trial. Strengthening his faith. I love how the Apostle James summarizes Job's story. James 5.11 You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that's, how, that's how James summarizes the story of Job. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In fact, God took the vilest act in all of history, the crucifixion of Christ, And through that great evil has brought abundant blessings upon all of his people. Forgiveness, justification, sanctification. We're promised a divine inheritance, eternal life. I mean, we could go on and on of how God has used that great, horrendous, evil act to crucify a sinless man. To pour out his blessings upon not only us, but the whole world. And of course, there's Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That God is guiding the course of all events and that he can even turn Great wickedness around to bring about great good is what gives Christians peace in the midst of calamity. I mean, that is where the peace that surpasses all understanding comes from. And this, of course, is what gave Christ confidence even to endure the cross. First Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Christ kept entrusting himself to the Father because he knew his Father was good and his Father was in control of all things. And he was. Now, our natural tendency when we are threatened is to respond either through fear or flight. Right? Flight or fleeing. Sorry, fleeing or fighting. We want to take control of the situation. We, we want to be in control. We trust in our own efforts to bring about our own security. Now, the, the problem with this tendency in both ways is that with running, we can't run forever. We can't always run from our problems. Our problems will follow us, in fact, in most cases. And often the more we run, the worse problems get. We also can't always fight. Sometimes our threats are too overwhelming and we're impotent in the face of those threats. And often the more that we do fight, the more people that we hurt and the more and more we end up isolating ourselves and actually ruining ourselves through fighting. Fighting produces paranoia and leads to a suffocating isolation. And the reason that Christians don't need to respond naturally with fight or flight is because of this truth of the sovereignty of God. That the Lord is our shepherd. We can trust his purposes even in the midst of great evil and suffering. And the purpose of this passage before us, numbers 23 and 24, is Precisely to illustrate God's sovereignty over every aspect of our life. In particular, how he directs things that are evil for good. Now, last week in chapter 22, we looked at how Balak hired Balaam. Balak was the king of Moab and he hires Balaam, this Mesopotamian sorcerer, to curse Israel. But before Balaam even shows up in Moab to do this job... God shows him three times that he speaks to him as well as shows him through his own donkey that his efforts will fail. Because God himself is protecting Israel. And notice again the last words that are spoken in chapter 22, verse 38. Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. And chapters 23 and 24 are just going to show how true those words actually are. As much as Balaam really wants to curse Israel, everything that comes out of his mouth is blessing. And each time the blessings actually increase. In fact, the blessings themselves actually build upon one another. And after the third attempt, Balaam is actually prompted by the Holy Spirit to offer up a a fourth oracle. And that oracle is one of judgment upon Israel's enemies. So really simple outline, two chapters, but four, uh, four various oracles. Let's look at the first one in 23 verses one through 11. Now, in this chapter, the first seven verses narrate the preparations that Balak makes to offer up his curse. 
Now, you've got to notice that everything here is set up to be the best. So, first of all, notice that everything that he prepares is costly. This is signified by the fact that seven altars are prepared and a bull and a lamb are offered up. Those are not cheap items. I mean, the rough equivalent would be like a car, seven cars. Right? These, were, these were valuable items that would be offered up to the gods. Notice also that the offerings are prepared at the best location on a bare height. Now, now bare heights, high places in the ancient east, near east, were, were seen to be the, they were understood to be the, the best place to communicate with the gods. Right? Just think in Greek mythology, there was Mount Olympus. That's where you met with the gods. It's the dwelling place of the gods. Even in Kings, you have uh, 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 Israelite kings offering up altars on the high places to false gods, but even some of the kings offer up offerings to Yahweh, thinking, hey, the high place is a better place to commune with God than the temple itself. And of course, they're rebuked for that. And that repeated refrain in the book of 1 Kings, that they did not tear down the high places, was a rebuke to those kings. So things are costly to the best location. Thirdly, the significance of the event is further illustrated by the fact that all the princes of Moab are there. So all the movers and shakers in the kingdom are here to watch this event. I mean, Balak and Balaam are rolling out the spiritual red carpet, so to speak. So just think about the preparations that go into events in our own time, like the Oscars or the Emmys or some big sporting event. All this preparation, the, the greatest people are there. They're invited to see this great thing take place. And so they wait as Balaam goes through his rituals. And in verse 7, Balaam tries to pronounce his first curse, but his words turn out to be a blessing. Now, the first two verses of the oracle are somewhat humorous. From Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God is not cursed? How can I denounce whom Yahweh is not denounced? I mean, this is essentially a taunt on Balak and Balaam through Balaam's own mouth. Like, how can I do the very thing that I'm trying to do is what he's saying. And the rest of the oracle then highlights the uniqueness of Israel. Balaam can't curse them because they're God's chosen people. They're unique. Verse 9, from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Now, the the fact that Israel does not count itself among the nations signifies its uniqueness. This this, This speaks to the holiness of Israel. It's separate. It's set apart from all the other nations. Because all the other nations, they just choose their own way. They go, they seek their own path. They make up their own gods. Israel alone has received God's special revelation. God himself has revealed himself to them through his law. And he's made a covenant with them. He's offered them his promises. But all the other nations, they're Gentiles, pagans. And just just remember what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.12. How he describes the, the Gentile 
the Gentiles, referring to believers there, but what the Gentiles believers were like before they were saved. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what makes Israel unique is they do have hope. They do have God and they have the covenant and the promises. And because Israel is God's chosen people, God has blessed them abundantly, as we'll see. This is actually the point of verse 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Now, the, the phrase dust of Jacob, it's actually an allusion to a phrase back in Genesis. Genesis 13, 14 or through 16. I'll just read verse 16. God said this to Abraham regarding his seed. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. The point here is that Balaam's oracle is signifying this. This promise is coming to fruition. God is blessing Abraham's seed. Notice also the final words of verse 10. This is striking. Balaam says, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So even in even in Israel's death, they are to be envied. Now, why in the world would an unbeliever say they envy the death of an Israelite? What's to be envied in death? I mean, if a person says, oh, I wish I could have died like that person. I mean, they must be caught up in the depths of despair. Nobody envies the death of another person unless they are in severe depression. But the sentence is quite profound. Why would an unbeliever envy the death of a believer? Because for the believer, death is not death. It's the entrance into eternal life. Right? For the unbeliever, death is the end of all happiness. But for the believer, it's really the beginning. And only Israel has received the hope of having such reconciliation to God. Again, they alone of all the nations of the earth have been chosen by God to receive His law and His revelation. And those Israelites who believe what He's promised and who demonstrate their faith through obedience, which is, again, marked by upright lives. Notice he says, let me die the death of the upright. Only those Israelites will escape the curse of death. And the point in this curse is that because Israel is blessed by God, they are not in a position of vulnerability. They're in a position of strength. No curse can have any effect on them because God himself has chosen to bless them. No matter how hard Balak and Balaam try. I mean, one can imagine just the look on Balaam's face when he's expecting, you know, Balak to to, to strike them with some nuclear weapon, which is the ancient equivalent of a curse. And instead, it's like rainbows and lollipops. Balaam immediately recognizes this is not a curse. This is a blessing. 
Balak said to Balaam in verse 11, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. It's some of you might recall the uh, the children's story, Ferdinand, the bull, right? That happy go lucky bull that just liked to sit around and smell the flowers while the other bulls were fighting each other. Well, one day he sits on a bee, gets stung and he starts going berserk. And the men that are watching say, hey, this man's going to be this bull's going to be great for the bullfight in Madrid. So they bring him to Madrid. And the crowd is there. They're going wild. The, the matador is terrified. They bring out this bull with this great reputation and it just sits down and smells of the flowers and just enjoys life. It's not what the people paid for. Or just imagine a boxer who gets paid millions of dollars to fight in the, the heavyweight title match. And once the, the announcer announces him and the, and the bell rings, instead of striking the first punch, he just walks up to his opponent and gives him a big bear hug and kiss on the cheek. And then he grabs the mic from the announcer and just starts praising his opponent for all his qualities and his character and, 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 and saying, this is the guy you should look to and respect and love and admire. I, I, I have no business even being in the ring with this guy. I mean, the crowd would be like, what? This is not what we paid for. Well, that's Balak's response to Balaam. That is not what I paid you to do. You're supposed to curse them, not bless them. And yet he's still convinced that something can be done. So he tries to have Balaam curse them again. Brings us to the second oracle. Now this time they go to a different location. The field of Zophim, the top of Pisgah. And they follow the same preparations as before. And of course, just as before, when Balaam tries to offer up a curse, a blessing comes out. And in fact, the whole of this oracle is actually a rebuke of Balak. Again, for thinking he could still bless it, he could still curse Israel. Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. Notice verse 19. Underline that in our Bibles. Memorize it. This is a great verse. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Notice how he continues. Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot revoke it. He, referring to God, has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh, their God, is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. There's no enchantment against Jacob. There's no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought. Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Now, honestly, the, the, the point of this oracle is, if God is for Israel, who can be against them? Since God has chosen to bless them, they will be blessed. Nothing can thwart his promises, Period. You've heard it said that there's nothing more certain than death and taxes. Well, the word of God is more certain than both. And because God is choosing to bless them, no enchantment, no curse, no weapon, no army can do anything to hurt Israel at all. 
And so the point is that Israel really has no external threats. And really, the, the only real threat to Israel because of God's relationship with them is themselves. And we'll actually see this in, the, in chapter 25. The greatest threat to Israel is their own stubbornness, their own hard-heartedness, their own folly. It's not external. It's internal. Now, this is a critical truth that we need to be constantly reminded of. Because there are real threats in the world. Just like here, Balak and Balaam and their nations were real threats. They really hated Israel. They really wanted to annihilate them. So this is not just some imaginary story. And likewise for us, we have real threats in our lives. But the truth is still the same. That God is sovereign even over those threats. Remember how Psalm 121 ends. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Numbers 23, 21 is remarkable because it says Yahweh, their God, is with them. See that in that verse? And the shout of the king is among them. God is with them. He's protecting them. But notice in this verse, the lines are actually parallel to one another. And actually like most of the lines in this oracle. It's what scholars call semantic parallelism. Same things being said in both lines. Yahweh, their God, is with them. The shout of a king is among them. What this is saying is God, Yahweh, is Israel's king. He is Israel's leader. And these are actually one of the first allusions in the Bible of the promised Messiah. And we'll hear more about this king in the third oracle. So let's actually turn there. The third oracle, which talks about the fruitful seed and the future king of Israel. Balak still thinks that if there's another location, if they just go to a different place, there will be a different outcome. So he insists they perform the ritual and try again. This time, however, Balaam chooses to change his his approach. Before, he used to look out upon Israel and go over these seeking, he'd seek the Lord through omens. Here now, he just sets his face towards the wilderness and sees all of Israel camp before him. And yet, his curse is still turned into a blessing. As he proclaims, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Now, up to this point, this oracle is just loaded with blessing. I mean, it's almost like a it's like a sappy, the ancient equivalent of a sappy 80s love song. I mean, it's just thick with blessing. And the imagery is actually Edenic. Balaam likens Israel's fruitfulness to the Garden of Eden. In fact, scholars have taken issue with verse six. 
because it says Israel is, is likened to an, a cedar tree planted next to a river. And they're like, well, cedar trees aren't normally growing next to rivers. They're in the mountains. They're a mountainous tree. But that actually, they don't need rivers, right? And that's the point. Imagine that if a cedar tree were to be planted by an abundant source of water, how great and big and mighty it would grow. It's because God is blessing her. Then in verse 7, the fruitfulness of Israel is tied to Israel's king. His king shall be higher than Agag. His kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. So even though the, the previous oracle indicated that Yahweh is the king of Israel, here God is said to bring his king out of Egypt. This prophecy really parallels Hosea 11.1, 1, which is also cited in Matthew 2.15. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Of course, in Matthew, that's reflecting Christ's flight with his family after Herod's murder squad uh, tried to strike them down in Bethlehem and they, and they fled to Egypt where Jesus' earliest years were. But unlike the baby born in Bethlehem, this king is described as a fierce warrior. Notice verses 8 and 9. He shall eat up the nations. His adversaries shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And the description of Israel's king fighting like a lion is terrifying. It's a terrifying image, but it's also an allusion to a previous prophecy made about the Messiah, which came in Genesis chapter 49. If you turn your Bibles to Genesis 49, notice the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah in verse 9. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and him shall all shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Now the parallel between these two prophecies is, is remarkable. In fact, the Apostle John picks up on this imagery of the Messiah being a lion when he describes Jesus in Revelation as the Lion of Judah. Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Balaam, in this prophecy, is actually foretelling the Messiah's future domination over all the nations of the earth. And when Balak hears this third blessing, he is infuriated. In fact, it says he, he slaps, he strikes his hands together. Now, he's not clapping. Hey, good job. He, he, is, he, is, he is furious. He's pounding his fist together because there's nothing else to pound, apparently. He's enraged. Notice what he says in verse 10. I called you to curse my enemies 
And behold, you've blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. Balak tells Balaam to flee for his life. He's so angry. Maybe you felt that angry before. Hopefully not. Balak is enraged. Because Balaam has only made matters worse for Balak. And so Balaam's not going to get paid. He didn't fulfill his part of the bargain. But notice how Balaam responds. Verse 12. Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh. To do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks that I must speak. But Balaam more or less says, I told you so. You saw this coming. You should have believed me. There is nothing I can do counter to the God of Israel's will. He's sovereign over all. And so in verse 14, Balaam agrees to go away. And maybe because he was threatened, maybe because he wasn't going to get paid, or maybe simply because he can't help it, he adds one more oracle just for good measure. And this is like a cherry on top of all the things that have been said so far. So far. See, notice that in all the, up, up to this point, all these oracles have really just been blessing upon Israel. There's been allusions to Israel's future domination. But no, no, no judgment has been pronounced until here. And really, this fourth oracle is a judgment upon Moab and a handful of other nations as well. But this oracle actually points far into the future. Notice verse 14. Behold, now I'm going to going to go to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. So this is a a distant prophecy. Now, technically speaking, these are actually four different oracles, but they're brought together as a unit in this narrative. Right. The fourth oracle against Moab is actually the most explicit in its messianic references. And it builds on the previous three oracles that we've already looked at. And it, again, it appoints to a coming king who's referred to as a star and a scepter. Again, following Genesis and its prophecy about the Messiah come from Judah. Look at verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. In fact, the Jews themselves understood this to be a messianic reference. Uh, in 135 AD, a man by the name of Simon took the last name of Bar Kokhba and led what's known as Bar Kokhba's rebellion against the Romans. Now, the rebellion failed. But in taking the last name Bar Kokhba, he was alluding to this reference in Numbers and basically stating he was the promised Messiah. Well, he was lying. Things only got worse for Israel in his false messiahship. But the, the point is the Jews understood that this was a messianic reference. And, and the future king is prophesied as one who will, notice, crush the forehead of Moab. And the, the allusion is Genesis 3.15. The first gospel proclamation, the proto-evangelion. 
is seen here where the promised seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Balaam then takes up three more oracles against the Amalekites, the Kenites, and Ashur and Eber. Now, admittedly, these, these last three oracles are really obscure. But ultimately, what's being prophesied in them is the future day when Christ will eliminate all enemies to Israel. When he will subject all evil under his feet. When he reigns upon the earth. In fact, this is the time that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning of verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So these final prophecies look forward to this time when Christ will reign upon the earth. And there will be no threat to Israel anymore. And when he returns, Christ will bring about a complete reversal of the ultimate curse by turning all of life into a blessing. As, as, as the song says, he comes to make his blessings flow far out as the curse is found. Or as John tells us in the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. He's turning this curse into a blessing. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, this is our great hope. When you bring about the fulfillment of all of your promises, you are not like man who should lie. But every word that you have spoken will come to pass. And therefore, Lord, we have no reason to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Lord, we're not naive. We know that, that we may face significant loss, pain, and suffering. Paul knew that as he wrote those words in Romans 8. But Lord, we also know that You, in Your greatness and goodness, are causing all the evil in this world to work together for your great purposes. Lord, we admit though that we struggle to to fully understand that. Because we do often find ourselves racked with anxiety and fear. We do lean upon our understanding far too much. So we pray that you would deepen our awareness of your sovereignty over all things. That we would, we would live like 
bright lights in the midst of this crooked generation. Lord, living with hope so that when unbelievers see us in the midst of our distress and our loss, Lord, that they would ask us for a reason for the hope that we have within us. And that through that question, they too might be saved. Lord, strengthen our faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.